Hello and welcome to Voices of Seed Kukwan. I'm Avery Herman Sakamoto, and today on the show, Chef Rob Kaneen is joined by Janine Gibbons and Kari Peterson for a conversation about traditional foodways. Rob was born and raised here in Seed Kukwan, and in 1994, he graduated from the Culinary Institute of America and has worked in the food industry since. He has a particular interest in sourcing locally and seasonally, and cooking with the reality of limitations of place and lifestyle in mind. Over the decades, he's received many accolades, cites cooking for President Barack Obama and along legendary chefs Jacques Pepin and Lydia Bastianich as highlights of his career. He is currently the Outreach Director for North American Traditional Food Systems, a nonprofit that is dedicated to addressing the economic and health crises that affect Native communities by reestablishing Native foodways. Let's get to the conversation. Today we're sitting with Bob Kaneen at the Petersburg Public Library and Kari Peterson and myself, Janine Gibbons, and Bob Kaneen uh, is a chef. Uh, Bob, can you tell us a little bit about yourself? Sure. So I was born and raised in Petersburg. Um, I left when I was in elementary school. Uh, I lived in Nome, Alaska for, a, I think, a year and a half-ish elementary school, like fourth grade with the Irish side of my family in Nome, so it was kind of funny. Pretty much lived, finished up finished up school in Anchorage, except for my freshman year we moved back to Petersburg. For the most part, probably the latter part of my year was all, years were all in Anchorage. Um, and then over that time, I'm not really sure why, but I've always just been singularly minded with culinary stuff, chef, um, kitchen workings, things like that. So that's pretty much every job I've ever had. When I was 18, I went to the Culinary Institute of America I graduated in 1992, so there was no food network, there was no internet to reference. Um, so I took a I took a semester at a culinary course, uh, the King Career Center Culinary Arts Program in Anchorage. And that chef instructor one was an alumni of the CIA, Culinary Institute of America, and that kind of put me on that path. Um, so I graduated from the CIA in 94. I moved on to New Orleans for two years. I worked at Emerald's Second Restaurant NOLA, which was fantastic. Commonly say I did about three years of living in the two years I was down there, easily. A lot of great food, great time, great music, um, just good living. And uh, from there I moved back to Alaska um, for probably two years. Uh, I met my now wife, we started dating at that time. We moved to Durham, North Carolina for five years, back to Anchorage for 15, and then we I've been residing, we've moved back to Durham, North Carolina, it'll be six years ago. Um, probably the bigger highlights of all of that are the last like seven years I was in Alaska, I started working under a banner of health and wellness. So farm to table movement was something that I had learned in Durham and in New Orleans and even in culinary school to a degree. And then when we moved up to Alaska, uh, I remember distinctly I was doing this video with a farmer and he said, well, you know, this is the hot house and blah, 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 blah. And he's like, you know, the, the thing is, Alaska is a food desert. And I was just like, well, how could I be Clinket, you know, 10,000 years plus of history? And like, how can this be a food desert? And so that really just kind of started chewing on me a little bit. And I started kind of focusing on work with indigenous, uh, indigenous um, ingredients. And that, again, under banner of health and wellness, like just some video work, um, you know, career highlights was cooking for President Obama in 2016 at a house party for 12 people with 
Secret Service and Air Force One and Black Hawks above me. <laughs> and um, um, But I also got to cook with like Jacques Papin and Lydia Bastianich. Um, <clears throat> those were like Alaska public media fundraisers. So the chefs from these special events would come and uh, visit and I'd you know cook meals with their books featuring Alaska ingredients with their recipes. And then another time I got to cook for Al Roker on the Today Show. Wow. And that was pretty neat as well. Earlier today, or earlier today, just like an hour ago, maybe 20 minutes actually, you were talking about, <laughs> you were talking about uh, your childhood here in Petersburg and how your uncle was, uh, that lived right here by, near the library was doing some traditional harvesting. Can you talk more about that? Oh, well, um, yeah, so I don't really remember all the street names here, but um, I think it was Ira. And if you go down Ira, actually where the library is, I was mentioning, like, if you go to the back of that library, that was my great-grandparents' home. And my mom was the oldest of five. Um, her mom passed away. My grandmother passed away when she was 18. She was the oldest. Who and was she, that? Who is that? Uh, Sarah Williams. My great-grandparents, uh, Selena and John Hansen, and then my um, Aunt Eloise, Uncle Butch, Uncle Bruce, Uncle Keith, and my mom, Terry Williams. Okay. Kaneen. Yeah, no. So, and you were born here in Petersburg? I was born here. Yeah. My mom was born here, and I believe my grandmother was born here as well. Yeah. And then my grandfather, uh, Noble Williams, was born in Sitka, and that's where most of the Clinton side of the family from you know, from there are. So they're, they're pretty strong lineal heritage back in Sitka. Um, and yeah, so I just, as a little kid, I remember like bombing down this hill. My uncle, my great uncle Chris and Aunt Lucy used to live right across the way. And I just remember like their smokehouse kind of always going. I remember my great grandparents, but they were older. So they were a lot more in the house. Um, but I do remember like black seaweed being, you know, draw, uh, drying on on windowsill or window screens so they grind it and you kind of have it you know laying out on the screens and then once it's dried you kind of put it away in a bag um again a smokehouse seemed to always be going and then my brother talks about having to like help my great uncle or great grandfather grandfather like braid seal intestines you know it's like telling him like just keep going down the go johnny go okay <laughs> pulling the pulling the intestines so he could braid them and i think they pickled them um yeah, and then growing up here as a kid, it was just, I just, I was just driving around today. I, I literally have just, today is the first time I've been back in like 25 years, which is kind of just makes me feel re really old saying that. <laughs> but, um, but I was just like driving by some of the places we used to live, or like my uncle Butch used to live right over, um, kind of around the corner from there. And he was a float plane pilot. Um, so once he sold that house and moved over uh, out the road, um, I remember going to his going to his house the last time I was here, and he just kept saying, "Hey, Rob's in town. Come on over. We're cooking." And he was like, "Uncle Bush, you've told like twenty people that we're <laughs> cooking." And he, on the side of his house, he had like a commercial freezer door, and it was just like you know, fish, venison, shrimp, crab. We went down to his hangar. He had a live crab pot, just you know, a couple of dungies in the pot. Uh -huh. I mean, so it's just kind of like that's one side. Um, and then just, I remember just being out and just eating berries all the time. I don't really remember too much other than smoked salmon and berries, honestly. Mm -hmm. um, 
and just always on my bike somewhere, you know? So, um, yeah, but it was, it's pretty funny to kind of be driving around and really kind of collecting all those, all those thoughts again. Yeah. Remembering. Yeah. Tell us some more about getting into the wellness movement and the food desert and how this is not a food desert. That's interesting to think about because when, <clears throat> as a little kid, I remember just having stuff. My uncles would come over. Um, my uncle, when he lived in the house right around the corner from us, he had a double car garage, but I don't think he had uh, a car because it's Petersburg. But I remember walking in there and there'd be like venison hanging, aging, you know? Yeah. And so just that, or there's always, you know, canned salmon or somebody's dropping off like shrimp and then, you know, we've got fish or there's always just bartering going on. And then I do remember distinctly like moving to Anchorage and being like, you know, going to like the, like Sagaya or something and like, holy moly, that's how much that costs, you know? So we didn't <laughs> get it as much there. And we, that's when, and even some of the thought processes, um, in any scenario, it seems like, you know, it's still food scarcity. Um, so you might have access to nutritional foods, but you might not know how to handle them because the elders have moved on or they don't do it anymore. It's a generation away from something. Um, or it's just, you know, sometimes it's just getting out and doing it. You know, I know they do hunt out there. I was thinking about that when we moved from Southeast, from Petersburg to Anchorage and we were still in the state and there's still moose out there and, and there's still berries to pick, but they're like two hours away or on the other side of town. It's not like here where things are a lot closer or a lot more accessible. And, or it's where, you know, you went with your grandparents and then your parents and, you know, so it's like you're kind of finding all of that again amongst just trying to live a life, you know, in a city. Yeah. And so sometimes those priorities become secondary. I was reading in, in your bio and I think it's in there too that all the different things you created for culture camps around the state of Alaska <laughs> based on the, the people in that area and um, can you talk about a few of those like I was it the Muktuk Sushi yeah yeah. Um, yeah and you know so again like my take on traditional foods um, for me was the fact that like when you step back and it's like the numbers have probably changed a little bit now it's been a few years but like basically alaska has a two billion dollar annual food budget so this the population of alaska generates two billion dollars in food sales and you know out of that like 96 percent of the food is imported into the state so <clears throat> i just think about that on a on a simple level like a farmer like yeah could he grow how much lettuce could he grow and how much and what if the what if what if priorities changed a little bit where that local lettuce was sold you know or bought yeah. on a grander scale and there's other pieces that come into play consistency of that seasonality um getting stuff to market overhead on a local aspect but i think that for me um what i'm it's a long-winded way of saying basically like the way i started approaching it was just like when things are available in your community how can you use them and incorporate it in, in, into daily life but I also think that when you're in the lower 48, you have corn, for example, whereas like in Alaska, it's kind of like you have proteins and you have botanicals yeah. and seaweed and then like, I guess, clink potatoes, right? <laughs> um, so it's kind of like when you're building out a meal, you kind of have to look at that and then think about, again, availability and even the sheer size of Alaska, like where is, 
you know, are you really getting, what kind of seafood are you getting in the interior of the state? Yeah. Um, so I was just kind of doing the best I could because a lot of my experience was like um, some more extreme examples. We're going to um, 500 person communities. I was on the Bering Sea doing a seal and a whale hunt and we harvested a seal and a whale and then I cooked it for the village like two days later. And um, that was in conjunction with the FDPIR program, food distribution program for Indian reservations. So I did kind of a take on a pozole because the other part is like the FDPIR program. And that's something we're working with on natives as well, where it's like Indian reservations are very different from East Coast to the West Coast, North to the South, and then yeah. obviously Alaska. So Alaska is like, what is hominy, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Um, so, you know, but something, one, one of the more extreme examples was probably that interaction in that community because there's like dry beans, for example, and there's um, commodity cheeses. But I guess going back to the beans, I was thinking, okay, well, we can do almost, the funny part was like, I would do these events and I would go places, and it was like the menus were being written as people were digging through the freezer or cupboards, you know? Yeah, yeah. So it's like you kind of have a game plan, um, and then sometimes it's really fun. Like I was in uh, Lake Iliamna, and they're like, oh, we have some salmon. I'm like, ah, so I've cooked the salmon. Oh, we've got this and that. And like, we've got porcupine. I'm like, game on. Like, I'm going to cook some porcupine, and we're going to figure this out, you know? So it was... Um, it's really interesting, but like for, for me, one of the things that was really, really fascinating was going to these villages and um, they were on the cusp of the, of the Bering Sea, 500 person villages. So like we're in the United States of America and it's 2016 and I'm staying in the building with running water. So that's <laughs> one thing to think about. Yeah. And then the other side, <clears throat> when you walk into people's homes, they have a stove and on top of their stove is like a college hot pot like a little a little electric oven. So, mm. you know, and they and that's the case because they're, nobody's going to turn on their gas because it's so expensive. Mm -hmm. yeah. So, oh, okay, so beans are really cheap, but it takes, you know, four hours to cook beans in a stew, right? So mm -hmm. you're not going to do that if it costs an astronomical amount of money to turn your oven on. So it was really just kind of interesting when you think back and you have to kind of think about how you're fixing, how are you fixing the problem? Like, yeah. you know, and so that's an extreme example. It would be like, I don't show up with like, parmesan cheese and truffle oil to like oh let me show you how to make this cool pasta dish like mm -hmm. that's not going to work for them that's not yeah. a priority at all so if they have whole wheat pasta and they have you know a, a harvested duck or there's duck in the freezer then we can start kind of working with that a can of tomatoes i try not to work with alcohol when i'm doing traditional foods so like they had you know orange juice is one thing that i use a lot to kind of neutralize some of the iodine like for example in like seal meat um, or duck, like wild duck is really minerally. Mm -hmm. um, so th those are just things that I, you kind of break down in a, in a cook brain kind of way, or you take something and kind of analyze it, and then you kind of put that out there. But then I tend to fortify it. I round out the plate at that point thinking about like rice, for example. It's shelf-stable. It's affordable. It's pretty much available anywhere in rural Alaska. Um, now, if you even if somebody goes to anchorage on a trip and they go to any store they can get like rice paper for example so like i show people how to make fresh rolls that's kind of fun and then it's like hey if it works it's a fresh roll if not it's a salad you know like mm -hmm. it breaks you've got all the fixings of a salad it's completely edible but that's kind of a fun something i do for for kids and then um also like fried rice is something that's really easy because you know a good ex and it, it's really a good way to show people like how to cook in a way to think about cooking because like a lot of times you get a recipe 
And you're like, oh, I only have canned peas. I don't have frozen peas. Like, well, it's the, yeah, it's fine. It's going to work. Um, but then, like, for example, if you have fried rice and you only have chicken, well, you put the raw chicken in at the beginning and you cook it. If you have shrimp, you cook it and then put the shrimp in so it doesn't overcook. Yeah. So you have to think a little bit. Um, another example I always bring up is, like, you know, I think about, again, growing up in Alaska and it's always, like, there's, like, companies over there's a couple of fillets of salmon that are baked there's some stuff left over not enough to really eat but you know flake it over a salad or you make a fried rice and put it in there like you know what i mean you can just kind of yeah. how do you work with the ingredients that you have if you're just joining us you're listening to voices of seat kukwan today we're listening to a conversation with rob kaneen janine gibbons and kari peterson about traditional food ways you can find the full episode at seatkavoices.org on Spotify, and on Apple Media. Let's get back to the show. I, I, I do love that you can kind of, like with traditional foods, I mean, I've, when you think about like, um, like stink heads or something, and it's like, nobody is walking around with a lab code, nobody will explain scientifically why, but it has been proven that like you, you pack it in like skunk cabbage. What is that? Stink it's head? like stink heads, so you take your heads, uh, I believe it's like, you know, you take the in, like guts. It's in, layered with, um, you know, in, in the ground, um, skunk cabbage leaves like piled up, and basically it ferments. But there's also the micro, like the, how everything works. It's like an antibacterial micro microbe on there, so it's actually going to be okay. It's going to ferment in, a, in in the right way. Mm. So it's just kind of fascinating. Or I just think about like like seaweed and salmon and like so you're eating salmon but then seaweed actually pulls all the nutrition nu- nutritional elements out of it maximizes the nutritional elements that you receive from the salmon mm. with seaweed so it's like when you look at that kind of stuff or even like muktuk and barrow you know where it's just like you don't literally you literally don't see the sun for three months mm-hmm. like you know but mm-hmm. you if you're eating the food provided through that environment it'll balance it all out mm-hmm. and I think that's the kind of thing like where I get it like but also like the past like I, I if there's a silver lining of the pandemic one of them was probably slowing down and just doing like concentrating a little bit more like being more intentional because I know for me it was always like oh I have to go to the store for this I have to go to the store for that you know instead of like having a list and so we were being way more intentional, which was also way less snacking mm-hmm. and just kind of, you know, actually started gardening. So there's my, and I seem to be having a, well, part of it's because I'm traveling a lot, but it's kind of a sophomore slump, like with vegetables. But um, <laughs> I love it though. I mean, it's just like, I don't know. And I don't know that I could have done it in my 20s, to tell you the truth. Yeah. Like, yeah. But um, yeah, I mean, it's just, it's really hard. I think it, the one thing I love about cooking is that you can always find, you're always kind of growing. Mm-hmm. and learning i was just talking about this in Menominee, where we were you know i've been cooking for 27 years like from culinary school so even before that i was dishwashing when i was 14 so uh 27 plus 6 is old and uh <laughs> i don't really get surprised so much when i'm seeing things but like when i was in Menominee, it's like you know we're harvesting these botanicals and like oh this is you know can be used for medicine or this can be used for you know blah 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 um it's just it's just awesome to just kind of keep learning, you know? And it's really humbling, too, to go somewhere and, again, be, like, an authority on food. But yet, how do you say that again? You know, mm-hmm. like, um, 
it's just really neat. And again, like being in areas that I'm not familiar with, whether it be like the Midwest or the Plains. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's really hard to say that. So if now that you're in Petersburg, if you could have one thing in Petersburg, like what would be the one thing you'd want to have? Of... Um, so smoked salmon and then also like spot shrimp. <laughs> like I literally like I don't eat shrimp unless they're Alaskan spots pretty much mm. like it's just they've they've just ruined it for me yeah. <laughs> well <laughs> I think we can all understand yeah that. yeah <laughs> yeah those are the two um I, for six years I did uh I was affiliated with I don't think it's really happening anymore but it was called the Sika Seafood Festival in Sitka um, and uh, the first year I always say I kind of invited myself to it because I, I heard about it happening and uh, a former Petersburg fellow was kind of a part of it for a second and so I was like you need a chef that's indigenous that works with Alaskan ingredients so I was the first guest chef and then after that I was the chef liaison so I would bring I would um, get chefs from around the country to, to visit and come up and experience it working with some kind of other shareholders in the community and so you know kind of yeah. gathering the food and all that and that was always the big treat for me it was spot shrimp come back to southeast and beach asparagus too or mm, sea yeah. asparagus, you know, beach, beach asparagus is what I call it but any of the I just love those botanicals on the beach like goose tongue mm, all say, that like it's just that, that's so yeah. this yeah and not like salty like like no. table salt but like the yeah. salinity and like the minerality of those it's just like the texture I just love that stuff I was just going to say the goose tongue, I love how, I don't know, I love the texture and the kind of density. I made some salad with it, or oh, it was a couple years ago, but I, the first time I harvested it, and I was like, this is really good, like uh-huh. really good. We went for a hike over in Point Agassiz, and the whole mudflat was just covered with asparagus. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I guess um, I was over at Camp Island recently, and... Uh, I had, I was planting some flowers and I had dug up and it was this root, it was a great big root, but it went to a chocolate lily, mm-hmm. we always call them dirty diapers, <laughs> but, um, and then Julie pulled it up and she said that it was a traditional, a traditional, what was considered rice, have you ever used it? It's, I've- I've tasted it once or twice. How would you prepare that? I I think you just kind of, I mean, it would just probably, you know, traditionally it'd be like one more ingredient in the pot kind of thing. Okay. Mm-hmm. Um, but I've had it raw. I've just, you know, taken little bites of it. Um, and then I've also just, yeah, I think I've only had it really raw. I don't think there was enough to really cook. Um, I was with a, I was with a forager and he's like, oh, this is really unique. And he kind of pulled it up, took a couple pieces off. Yeah, and you us. can just... But you you could totally see how it just breaks yeah, up and looks like a little rice. Right yeah. yeah. Well, I think part of the issue is with the traditional stuff is that sometimes people come in, they're like, oh, we know we can eat with this. And then they come in and they, they take it all, not realizing yeah. how I'm only going to take little parts of a certain plant so that it can regenerate. Yeah. But sometimes people come in and they just take everything that are yeah. aware of how to to do it sustainably so that it keeps repopulating. I think that's the tricky part is like there's... I know there's some projects that I've heard about where they want to build out like apps for foraging and stuff that are based on traditional food and knowledge, but it's also kind of like, it's a good intention, but I also feel like it's really got to be thought thoroughly on that because whether it be understand, I mean, 
the the rule of thumb is like take a third. Well, it's like my third, or after you get there, your third, or after you get there, yeah. your third, or the tenth person's third. Like, mm-hmm. what does yeah. that mean? Mm-hmm. And um, just making sure that also the knowledge doesn't just go away or doesn't get abused even unintentionally Mm -hmm. you know if it ends up in a marketplace or something like that and just Mm -hmm. you know it's it's that kind of stuff is always really tricky Mm -hmm. so i have to ask one question too this is just a personal (laughs) because i was watching a video look like you were using pop weed bladder wreck yeah is that just the regular pop weed that we put on for fertilizer yeah okay that's what i thought i was looking at it and i was like Oh, yeah. Really, mm. you could use that in in because mm-hmm. you you used it in a like fried rice. Yeah, probably a stir fry of some sort. Um, yeah, it was. You know, what I would do is I would probably clip it a little bit, like with a pair of scissors, and just break it down into like little bite-sized pieces. Yeah. Um, like a stir fry. Um, but the kind of cool part with what I was shown was that the bladder rack has got those little pods at the end, and that those pods are basically like almost like adding a slurry to a soup, so it's a thickening agent. Mm. So, oh, yeah. yeah, so like if you're making like a, I can't think of, I can't think of a good example, but... Halibut um, leek soup. Perfect. <laughs> and so instead of adding like cornstarch exactly slurry or something like that, I think of more of like yeah. an Asian inspiration than something like cream-based. Um, but you could, you know, you could basically just have those, they'll pop and it actually is a thickening agent. It adds a little viscosity and thickness to the soup and also like a salinity to it. That's really nice. Yeah. I, mm. So I was watching that. I was like, oh, I need to try some of this in my fried rice and yeah. Soup and yeah. I was, it's funny you say that because I, I think the two things that I was watching, like one was, um, I told, I told my uncle about this and he, he grew up doing a lot of hunting. Uh, but he... I did a stir fry. It was in Sitka, and we used skunk cabbage, but it was like the 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 root, okay. and so you kind of pull it out, and you've got the leaves, and then the kind of that corn cobby piece in the middle, and it was sort of the base part that was half under the ground and half on top. And my uncle goes, "You can eat that." I'm like, "Yeah, it was good. It was like almost like a bok choy." And he goes, "You know, I was hunting one time, and I saw a bear eating it. I was like, well, if a bear's eating it, maybe I should try it." And he goes, "I started nibbling on it, and my." mouth started going numb so i thought maybe it had a, a toothache or something and it was like yeah so because i don't mess with that but it, it makes you think about all of this stuff like um like wild celery pachushki yeah. like i've heard people where like you know some people i've just heard some people can be allergic to it so it's yeah. like the stuff isn't not you know you should probably always keep that in mind when you're foraging as well yes um, you definitely want to know well, because yeah. I remember my kid watching the deer eat the center of, and then deciding that he was going to eat it. Mm-hmm. And I remember Googling skunk cabbage to see if it was poisonous. And what I got, the result was not the skunk cabbage around here. It was like Midwest skunk cabbage, okay. which is highly poisonous. And <laughs> But my kid was fine. <laughs> yeah. Um, but between that and also like bull kelp, like I remember just like, those are things that take me back. Whereas like skunk cabbage fights and like whipping each other with bull kelp. Like Mm -hmm. you can eat that stuff. (laughs) Yeah. That was just for torturing. Yeah. (laughs) Gnach cheese to Rob Kanin for sitting down to have this conversation during his stay here in Seed Kakwan. Voices of Seed Kakwan is recorded and produced on Hlinket Ani, the historical homeland of the Hlinket people, but also the current homeland and the land that holds their future.
Thank you for joining us for Voices of Sitkakwan. This show is a collaboration between the Petersburg Indigenous Awareness Committee, KFSK Community Radio, and the Petersburg Public Library. It is made possible, in part, by a grant from the Institute of Museum and Library Services and the Alaska State Libraries, Archives, and Museums. It is also made possible by the generosity of our participants, including the volunteers on our content committee. We thank them for their enthusiasm and dedication. To participate in Voices of Seat Kukwan, contact Kari Peterson at the Petersburg Public Library. Archives of shows can be found at seatkavoices.org. That's S-E-E-T-K-A voices.org, as well as on Spotify and Apple Media. Gunach Chish.